0: Okay, I'm going to take a little poll, all right? I know you guys are excited about all the polls uh, going on today. So, I want to take a personal poll. Uh, this is just with you. You don't have to, you're not, you're not going to tell anyone else about this. This is just a poll for you, okay? So, on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being um, a, 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 you're, you're just getting started on your walk as a Christian. I mean, just getting started, right? That's a 1. And 10, you're almost in heaven. I mean, you're almost there. <laughs> right? That's a 10. Perfect. You're 9.5. Now, when you get there, you're a 10, but you're close, right? So, a 1, just getting started. 10, about there. Where would you rate yourself on your spiritual journey? Where would you say you are? What number would you give yourself? Just between you and the Lord, be honest, give you a second, Where are you going to rate yourself there? Okay, so here's the, here's the follow-up question to that. What is holding you down or holding you back from, uh, from that next level? If you're a five, what's holding you back from a six? If you're a three, what's holding you back from a four? What's holding you back or holding you down from following hard after Christ? Talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I I, I can't point to anything specific going on in my life, but I am just dry. I feel disconnected. Uh, I, I feel like I've lost my my love for God, my intimacy. I know I'm a Christian. I'm not doubting my salvation, but it's kind of going through the motions. I'm kind of running on empty. Some of you, no doubt, here are discouraged, maybe even disappointed, maybe disappointed with God, and you're worn down spiritually and emotionally. Some of you may be caught in in some stage of sin, sexual relationship before marriage. Sexual relationship outside of marriage, pornography, a Facebook relationship becoming more and more an issue in the Christian community, and addiction, drugs, gambling, alcohol, video games. Counselors are telling us that young marriages are being challenged. By addictions to video games that have been brought into the relationship. Some of you, maybe it's the guilt of a past sin. You just can't let it go. You get the forgiveness here. you can't move it down to here. And you get worn out by pretending to cover up for a past sin, don't you? Maybe you're living under the weight of worry, worried about your singleness. Worried about your marriage, worried about your children, worried about our country with just 20 days, a little over 20 days to go into election. I, I tell you, I'm talking to Christians today who are worried, sick, regarding what's going on in our country. Today we're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus. We're going to look at chapters 7 through 11. The setting is Egypt. The interaction is between Moses and Pharaoh, but the main character is who? Okay, let's try that one more time, all right? (laughs) Who's the main character of the Bible? Let's just start there. God, very good. Moses and Pharaoh, but the main character is? He always is, isn't he? And we're going to see that although this takes place at a different time, It takes place in different circumstances. The, the, The truths we see in these chapters is just as powerful and just as relevant as they were in 1446 BC when most commentators think this event took place. Here's what we're going to see. I just want to put this out right from the front. Here's what we're going to see today God is sovereign, He's in control. God is sovereign and he is fully capable of delivering you from whatever is holding you down or holding you back so that always a purpose in there so that you can worship him and you can serve him God is sovereign and we're going to see today that he is fully capable of delivering you from whatever's holding you down whatever's holding you back so that you can be the worshiper he wants you to be, so you can serve him full out, full orbed in your life. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Moses is 80 years old. When we open up Exodus chapter 7, the first 40 years of his life, God trained him in Egypt. The second 40 years of his life, God trained him in the desert, in Midian. God's still going to be training him. Moses has a lot to learn, as we all do. But now God is going to put that training to use. Most commentators believe that Thutmose III had been the king of Egypt when uh, Moses was raised in the palace. But now Thutmose is long gone. And the new pharaoh, most commentators believe, is Amenhotep II. And Amenhotep was probably in his 20s when this has taken place. Now, think about this. The Egyptians believed in many gods. We're going to see that today. But the greatest god was Pharaoh himself. So here is a young man in his 20s, probably. He thinks he's God, he is filled with pride, he is filled with arrogance. He has all the power he needs. He rules one of the greatest countries of that day. And that feeds his conceit because Egypt had everything people value. Even in our day, here are the things people value, right? Economic security. What are they talking about with the presidential election, right? Economic security. Every year, the Nile that was the lifeblood of Egypt, would flow out of its banks. It would flood every year. And it would take all that rich sediment and stuff and put it out into the land. Then it would go back into its banks, and that's where uh, the, the farmers would plant the crops. Uh, Egypt had, had bountiful, bountiful crops, fertile soil. They had uh, tremendous education. They had a military strength. They had accomplishment. The pyramids were probably built... Uh, a little uh, uh, later, or actually earlier, and the pyramids were, were, were marvelous feats. Even today, engineers say, how in the world did they do that with the, with, the, with the tools that they had? Now, Moses' assignment was straightforward. God's people had been living in slavery in Egypt. They'd been in Egypt for about 430 years, probably been in slavery for 200 years. And Moses is going to go stand before this guy who thinks he's a god and says, let my people go. Now, to Pharaoh, that is an absurd, an absurd request. It is laughable. The the Israelites were were poor and expendable individuals, but in mass, they were his working force. They were the group building some of his forts, some of his uh, palaces, some of his Uh, structures throughout Egypt two million people so we look at the men and you break that down with men and women you got a you got a working force and so Moses this 80 year old guy goes into a 20 year old man who thinks he's God and says let my people go he laughs at him so God convinced Pharaoh with 10 plagues that uh, this wasn't something to laugh about he was a God that should be taken seriously. We're going to look at these plagues. We're not going to dig deep into each one of them. Um, but I want to consider, first of all, why the ten plagues? God could, have, God could have gone in and said, let my people go, boom, they're gone, right? He didn't have to do the ten plagues. Why would he do, these ten, why would he do the ten plagues? A lot of reasons. Let me, let me give you four. First of all, God's judgment. Sin carries consequences. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man reaps that he also says. That's what Galatians tells us. Sin carries consequences. Egypt had been treating Israel brutally under slavery. God's going to judge that. Secondly, God's power. He needs to show Pharaoh he is God. And he's going to come against every God, all the gods that Egypt serves. In fact, in your notes, I don't even have places for you to write in. I've just given you the plagues, how Pharaoh responded, and then the gods that those plagues address. Every god's going to come after. So, Egypt needs to know of God's power. But who else needs to know of God's power? The Israelites. They've been in slavery. They've been crying out to God. They hadn't seen God at work. They don't know if they want to follow God or not. So God has to demonstrate His power to them. He has to demonstrate that He is worthy of following, that He's worthy of worshiping. He says, I'm going to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. You're going to know that I am God and there is none other. Third, God's protection. We're going to see as we go through this that some of the plagues would happen in Egypt, but they would not happen in Goshen where Israel lived. God protected them. And God's telling them, I can protect you. I can watch over you. I'm going to deliver you from everything holding you down. I'm going to deliver you from everything holding me back. By the way, when you're in the desert and you're wandering around there and you're wondering if I'm still with you, you're going to look back and you're going to remember that I protected you. I was with you. I watched over you. And then one other thing, God's deliverance. Finally, he's going to to bring them out. He's going to bring them out of Egypt. And they're going to be set free. And remember, the significance of all the plagues is to remind us of this. God is what? One more time. God is sovereign, He's in control. And He's fully capable of delivering us from whatever's holding us down, whatever's holding us back, so that we can worship Him and so that we can serve Him. All right, here we go. Plague number one. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, because he goes out to the water. You'll notice that some of the plagues, he confronts Pharaoh at the water in the morning. Some of the plagues he confronts, there's a pattern. He confronts uh, Pharaoh in in the courtyard, in the palace, and then sometimes there's no warning at all. They just happen. This one, there's a warning. Goes to Pharaoh in the morning. As he goes out to the water, he waited on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And uh, God said, Take in your hand your staff. That's important. The staff was a tangible representation of the power of God. So so Aaron is going to put the staff over the water, and the water is going to turn to blood in a second. But that staff is representing God. And then God said to him, uh, uh, Then say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews. Now just stop right there. (laughs) This is Pharaoh. And who are the Hebrews? They're slaves, right? So tell him, the God of the slaves. And Pharaoh's going to say, what kind of God is that? How powerful a God is that? God of the slaves? I wouldn't want that God. Again, God's setting him up to show him just how powerful he really is. Tell him, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go you may worship me in the desert but until now you've not listened this is what the lord says by this time tomorrow you will know that i am the lord with the staff that is in my hand i'll strike the water of the nile and it will be changed into blood the fish of the nile will die the rivers will uh, will will stink the egyptians will not be able to drink the water that's exactly what happened pharaoh wouldn't let them go he pharaoh always has a choice to let the people go he doesn't the waters all turn to blood This is against three of the Egyptian gods, the the god Hopi, who was the god of the Nile, Isis, who was the goddess of the Nile, and Canum, who was the guardian of the Nile. Every one of them is put down as the Nile now turns to blood. Not only the Nile, but everything in the cooking pots at home, everything in the vessels at home, everything turns to blood. Look at verse uh, 24, and the, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get their drinking water because they could not drink the water, the water of the river. So they had to go along the Nile. They had to, get the, they had to dig down. The sand would have purified the, the water. They had to bring it out so they could drink it. And with that water that they brought up from the, from the sides, the filtered water, the magicians turned it to blood. The magicians could do the same thing. We don't know if the magicians did that by sleight of hand trickery or of a satanic work. We don't know. But they did the same thing that Moses and Aaron had done. And Pharaoh refuses to even, even listen to what they're doing. He refuses to talk to him. In fact, it says he turned and walked back to the palace, didn't even take this to heart. Now, just think about the arrogance there. The river has turned to blood, but Pharaoh didn't even take it to heart plague number two is the plague of the frogs this is, uh, they were everywhere the goddess Hakek was the goddess of birth, the, the, of life and fertility. She had a woman's body with a frog's head is how she was represented. This God was represented. And Moses said, because she's the goddess of fertility, Moses said the frogs are going to come into your houses. They're also going to come into your bedrooms. They're also going to be on your beds. They're going to be everywhere. Look at chapter 8, verses 6 and seven. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh probably said, guys, it would have been better had you gotten rid of them, not created more of them. We just created more frogs, the Egyptians, the magicians did. That was a problem. Look at verse nine. Moses said to Pharaoh, I, I leave, listen, listen to the sarcasm, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials, for your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except those who remain in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow, I want it done tomorrow. Now, why in the world would, would God allow Pharaoh to pick the time? I mean, this guy thinks he has enough power anyway. Why would God allow Pharaoh to pick the time to get rid of the frogs? Because he did not want Pharaoh to think this happened by a natural cause or it just played itself out. He wanted Pharaoh to pick a date and he was going to deal with it on that date and Pharaoh would know, I said tomorrow, and God did it on that day. God is teaching Pharaoh how powerful he really is. Third plague is the plague of gnats, probably mosquitoes. This was against the god Set, the god of the desert or the god of storms. It could have been also against the priests. The priests prided themselves in staying pure by frequent washings, and now they had insects all over them. And now the magicians, with this one, begin to realize they were a little bit out of their league. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is what? This is the finger of God. God's in this one. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. So the next plague is the plague of flies. Moses goes is said, if you don't let the, if, if we're done, if you let the people go, but if you don't let the people go, swarms of flies are going to come over all the land. And that's exactly what happens. He doesn't let the people go go. Plague number four flies. Plague number five, the death of livestock. The livestock in the fields. Look at chapter 9 verse 4. But look what's going to happen. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. So I'm going to protect Israel's livestock. All the other livestock is going to die. And Pharaoh wants to make sure that happened. Look at verse 7. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was still unyielding, and he would not let the people go. The next plague is the first one to endanger human life. It's the plague of boils. This one put the magicians out of commission. Look at verse uh, 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because the boils that were on them and all the uh, and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Just as the Lord had said. The next was the plague of hail. Now God gave a warning here. He said, I'm going to bring the hail. I'm going to bring it out on the fields. So... Go get your animals out of the fields. Get the people out of the fields. And some uh, listened. Look at chapter 9, uh, verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord. So there are still people, there are some people getting it. They're starting to fear God during this time. Those who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock uh, inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And of course, their livestock were killed in the field what the hail didn't damage or destroy the hail destroyed the flax and barley but the wheat and spelt were still in its nascent uh, stages and so the next plague takes care of that that's the plague of locusts that comes in and wipes out all of the crops and then the ninth plague is the plague of darkness Darkness comes for three days. Can't see a thing except where? In the land of Goshen. Darkness was not put on the land of Goshen because God made a distinction between his people and the children, the people of Egypt. The next one is the worst culmination. It's the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh is going to lose his firstborn son, who by the way is what? Is a God. So now God demonstrates that he is God over all. We're going to look more at the firstborn, the death of the firstborn next week, next time as we look at the Passover as well. But I want to, sh- I want to see something, I want to, I want to talk about something that we see throughout, throughout this passage. And it's concerning uh, for some people. Check out chapter 8, uh, verse 15. We've talked about why God brought the plagues The reasons. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he what? He hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. So there are times in here where we see that har- so Pharaoh has responsibility. Pharaoh hardened his heart. There are other times we see throughout this passage. Check out verse 9. Or chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord, most of the time we see the word hardened. This is the way it's, it's, uh, it's written. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, when, and, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. God Hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why would he do that? Can he do that? Should he do that? Well, in Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament, he tells us what's going on here. Again, the best commentary on Scripture is what? Scripture. So turn over to Romans uh, chapter 9. And here we see what's going on in this passage. Paul explains it. Chap- the book of Romans, remember Paul's a lawyer, and the book of Romans uh, sets out the case for a man's situation, he's a sinner, for God's power and, and uh, God sending his son to save us. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul argues and explains The sovereignty of God. That God is in complete control. And he uses the Old Testament to establish his argument. He first uses the father of the uh, Hebrews, the uh, father of Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And he says, Jacob, God said, Jacob, I have loved Esau, the brother, remember, we looked at this in Genesis, Esau, I have hated. Now, the word hate there is not an emotion like we know hate, but God is saying, Jacob, who was the second one born, he wasn't the firstborn, Jacob, I have chosen. Esau, I have rejected. Now, the question is, you know, can God do that? Why would God do that? Paul knows that question's coming, so he says in verse 14, what then shall we say, is God unjust? Is God unjust because he chose Jacob over Esau? Look at verse 14, reading this from Scripture. Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. Now, remember, Paul's arguing for salvation. We already know that we cannot achieve salvation by our works, right? For by grace you're saved through faith, Ephesians two eight nine. 9, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's a free gift from God. So, God's going to have compassion on who's going to have passion and mercy on who, whom He's going to have mercy. God is at work in history. He's at work in pharaohs. He's at work in the lives of kings. He establishes it all for his purposes, for his reasons. He sent his son to die for our sins, and we have responsibility, and God is also sovereign, as we see in this passage. Look at verse uh, 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you. Think about that. I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why I raised you up, Pharaoh. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power in a way that the whole earth knew. In fact, 40 years after the Exodus, people are still talking about God's power, God's work in the nation of Israel. You remember when Moses... We'll talk about this. He sent spies over the promised land, and the spies had to hide, and they hid with a woman, she was a prostitute named Rahab, and here's what Rahab says in Joshua chapter 2 verse 9. I know Joshua was actually the one that sent the spies, not Moses, okay? So you don't need to email me on that one. I got We caught that one before, all right? I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Check this out. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. We heard about that. When you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the the, uh, Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. We don't, we've never met him, we don't know him, we're a pagan nation, but we know this, he delivered you from Egypt and 40 years later, we're still talking about it. He is the God above in heaven and he is the God on the earth below. God established Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. And you say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, Paul's already ahead of us. Look at verse 19. One of you will say, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist His will? And here's how Paul answers it. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? So what does form say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now, here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying that we cannot ask questions about God or we can't ask questions to God. We're going to have questions. We're going to have stuff in our life we don't understand. But Paul is saying this. Don't put God on trial. Who are you, O man, generic, to put the judge of the earth, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign over all, the one who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, who says, whosoever will may come, who are you to put God on trial? We can't do that. One of the aspects of being Christian is coming to the very humble point in our life. To say and understand that we don't know all the answers. That we cannot understand the mind of God. So let's just play this out. Everyone here believe God's eternal, right? Well, not everyone, I'm most of you. <laughs> I won't assume anything. That means that there has never been a time when God wasn't. And there never be a time when he isn't. Now can anyone here wrap their mind around that? I can't. And yet that that is, that is a basic attribute of God. All of his attributes work together in perfect harmony. And there are some things we're not going to understand. But here we see that God is sovereign. Now, you know what the easy thing to do is? The easy thing for believers is to play with that up here, wind that around, play with that, talk about that, but never get down to here and realize that if He's sovereign and He's all-powerful, then He can deliver me from those things that are holding me at a four when He wants me to be at a five and a six. You see if I just play with it up here then I don't have to deal with the personal stuff like my thoughts and those sins that those temptations that drag me down and harsh words that I say to people I love if I just keep it up here I don't have to deal with the real practical things in my life that allow me to demonstrate my love for this one who loves me so much he sent his son God is sovereign and he is fully capable of delivering us, me and you, from whatever's holding us back and whatever's holding us down. So the question is, what's holding you down? Why are, why are you stuck at a four? Why aren't you at a six? God's sovereign to deal with that. If you'll let him take it, and give it to him. Okay. Let's talk about something before we wrap this up. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, let me address something that I know is on a lot of people's minds. This election coming up, right? Anyone been thinking about that or reading about it? Or? <laughs> this is unique, to say the least. I, so a few years ago, I wrote a little booklet called P- we, Never, we Never Tell You Who to Vote For. That's between you and God. Smart people. And you need to make, prayerfully make those decisions. We'll talk about that more in a second. But we wrote a little booklet called Picking a President. And in that booklet, I, uh, I gave, uh, I think, seven uh, characteristics. Seven character traits that you should use to evaluate a candidate. And honestly, um, I don't think any of those character traits even apply uh, to, to these individuals. <laughs> So we're not even we're not even passing out the book this time. Yeah. Kind of be a waste of waste of time. Uh, every human has flawed characteristics, but we have seemed to sunk to a to lower levels. We'll talk more about this later on but I'm just going to challenge you with a couple of things if you believe in the sovereignty of God then you cease to believe in anything else being your savior a government a military an economy a doctor you hold to the sovereignty of God he's in charge We see throughout Scripture, time and time, again. why do you think God puts these stories in Scripture? Israel lived it out. They were there. But he puts it so we can see that he's sovereign. He's in control. And quite honestly, see, Christians in a panic, I read your Facebook post. Relax a little bit. Are we living concerning times? Absolutely. Challenging times? For sure. We have responsibilities? Yes. But God's sovereign. And as believers, we we should shouldn't shouldn't we as believers be those who demonstrate to a world that we don't have to live in fear? Because we serve a God who is the Lord of everything above and everything below. Shouldn't we be able to have a conversation regarding this? And yeah, we need to know the issues, for sure. We have responsibilities. We have been a great nation. We have great freedoms. But, 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 but bolstering that conversation and above that conversation is this. You know what? See, I don't have to fear because God is sovereign. The God I call Father, He's sovereign over all. So many believers are panicking. And and how, how does that distinguish us from the world when we're panicking? Remember, God distinguished Egypt from Israel. The plagues went on Egypt, but he said, I'm the God of those people. No plague is going to follow them. So how are we going to distinguish ourselves or allow God to distinguish us if we're panicking like everybody else? We should be those who demonstrate a confidence in a God who is sovereign. And we should be praying, right? Be anxious for nothing Philippians 4 says right except the election you can just really get all wound up about that be anxious about nothing but in all things through prayer and petition with what thanksgiving let your requests be known to God and God promises what when we do that a peace that passes all understanding here's my challenge Instead of going on Facebook and answering all those links, instead of getting all wound up with cable news, our challenge from here to the election is spend 10 minutes every day in prayer for our country. OK? Ten minutes. Now if you're doing 30, don't back it down. Ten minutes it's a short time let's give it to God man a lot of Christians I'm reading a lot of stuff and a lot of Christians I don't know what to do so when you don't know what to do who do you go ask your heavenly father who's sovereign over all and you know what he's going to be just as sovereign after the election as he is before so, the, the, the action you take is going to be up to you, between you and the Lord. But man, bathe that with prayer. Spend time praying for our country. And spend time thinking, you know what? Now, as a believer, I can demonstrate to my neighbors and those I work with who are having a fit. I can crank it up to another level and I can say this is what it looks like to follow hard after Jesus Christ yeah I take my responsibility as a citizen seriously but I also know that I'm a citizen of heaven first and foremost and my father is sovereign over all father that is our prayer man we get just as panicked as everybody else and we're Tell everyone how panicked we are. Why would would anyone want what we have if we're just as panicked as they are? Help us to demonstrate a peace, a confidence, a security, even amidst the chaos. Help us to prove by your strength, because we can't do it on our on our own, our, our love for you. Help us to help us to find, help us to, to use anxiety for whatever's happening in our life. As a as a reminder, now it's time to pray. And when we do, you promise a peace that passes understanding. And that is our prayer. In Christ's name. Amen.